And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around into the crowd and he said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's stop there. We'll pick up the rest as we go. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. We, we pray that you would be near us tonight, that you'd be with us, that you would show yourself to be powerful and good and everything the scripture says you are. Um, but we come to you from places of fatigue, places of uh, anxiety, the places of doubt. And so we pray that you would come close to us and heal us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Stranger Things Season 2 is coming out Friday night. I can't hardly wait. We're going to have um, a viewing party, a little shameless plug for our UF event Saturday night. More details to follow. Well, one of the things we love about Stranger Things, and Mark is full of strange things, is um, this whole, like, what is going on? Do you remember when you first watched it last summer? Like, where did Will go? Is he alive? Is he dead? What's the Demogorgon? What is the upside down? And at the end of the series, you're still kind of asking all those same questions. Um, And Mark is kind of doing a similar thing. He's full of weird stories, and this is one of those. Um, But what he's been doing all through what we've been seeing so far in the first five chapters is he's trying to get you and me, the reader, to ask, who is this? Like, what, who and what is Jesus? Um, We've seen his power over the spiritual world and the physical world, and he's forgiving sins and all this stuff, and he's stopping storms. And here, Mark picks up on a theme that we saw the week before when he calmed the storm, this idea of moving out of fear and into faith. Moving from fear to faith, and he's picking up on a thread that's been carrying on through all of these stories, even the one that we skipped. And here we see Jesus healing this untouchable woman and a little girl. We didn't read it yet, but we'll get there. And in it we see a lot of things about Jesus that reveal a little bit more about what Mark is trying to persuade us that Jesus is. Uh, First, we see that Jesus is a person who comes to all kinds of people. He comes to all sorts of people. If you've been around the semester, you've seen that he's been with lepers and tax collectors, and sinners, 
people who are on the fringes and the outcasts of society. He heals a paralyzed man and so forth. But here it's really interesting is that this man Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, Jesus has come for him. And he's an important and successful man. He's a big deal. A ruler of the synagogue who comes and falls at his feet. He would have been very influential. He was probably a part of the Pharisee party, which would have had kind of religious sway in the community. And as a ruler or leader of the synagogue, it meant the local worshiping community. He would have been a teacher there. And he would have been in charge of kind of what's going on in this little town that Jesus is coming to And here's the thing, most of you will be influential, successful leaders in some way or another in your life. You either came from families of success and influence, or you coming out of here will one day go on and become that, whether that be through an actual strategic influence in your community, or just through your success and the wealth that you accrue. By the way, Peter McHenry, economics professor, is going to be coming to us next week to talk about the Bible and money. The relationship between God and money, it's going to be lit. <laughs> that's what the kids, that's what the kids, that's what my kids tell me the kids are saying these days. It's going to be lit uh, <clears throat> in 2015. Um, uh, but it's going to be great. But there's this reality that you, you know, like the reason you came here was to be successful. And so it's really good news for you that Jesus comes for the successful as well as the French. Because if he didn't, he didn't come for you. Like, by virtue of the fact that you're here, even if you came from, like, a blue-collar family and you had to scratch and claw your way into the school, you're here now. So it's good news for you. Jesus came to bring salvation to every person, regardless of class. And this man, Jairus, though he's successful and a pillar of the community, is suffering because his little girl is dying. So there's this myth that we create that if we succeed, we'll be free of suffering. Really rich, successful people have little girls die all the time. And they come to the end of their rope, just like Jairus is here. He doesn't have any other hope, and he's desperate, and he's feeling urgent. And so he comes to Jesus. But we also see at the same time, in the middle of the story, this marginalized woman. Uh, In Jesus' day, women were generally second-class citizens. They weren't as respected as men, and that's still the case all over the world. You know this, right? It's a big deal. But thankfully, not here in America, right? Of gender equality, and everything's awesome. I'm kidding. Um, this was in the Harvard Business Review on Monday. I'm going to read this to you. They, they did this study where they put sensors on employees at a major company, and they were trying to figure out Like, why is it that women are not advancing up the ranks in this company? And is there something about women's behavior that's different from men? And so they didn't actually record the conversations, or at least didn't make that public. But they could measure tone of voice, where you were standing, who you were with, where you spent your time, and so on and so forth. And here's what it said. As we analyzed our data, we found almost no perceptible differences in the behavior of men and women in the office place. Women had the same number of contacts as men. They spent as much time with senior leadership, and they allocated their time similarly to the men in the same role. We couldn't see the types of projects they were working on, but we found that men and women had indistinguishable work patterns in the amount of time they spent online and concentrated work and in face-to-face conversation. 
And in performance evaluations, men and women receive statistically identical scores. This held true for women at each level of seniority. Yet women weren't advancing at the same rate as men were in the company. Our data implies that gender differences may not lie in how women act, but in how others perceive their actions. This is in a very sophisticated, Western, successful, liberal community. And this data is saying there's more analysis to be done and so on and so forth, but that women aren't advancing. And then were you around last week? Were you on social media at all? Remember the whole Me Too? Which a lot of you probably posted Me Too. Like we still live in a world where women are treated very, very differently. I had some male friends posting Me Too. Um, but even in the European Parliament, I heard this on NPR this morning. There were women who were members of parliament holding up signs that said, me too. And some of them claimed to have records over just the last three years of over 50 different situations in which they were approached inappropriately by men in the workplace. In the European parliament. So this is still a huge issue. It's a big deal all over the world, and I, I point this out. It's not the main, this, indulge me on a sidebar here. It's not the main point of the passage. But Jesus is here in this story approaching two different women, a little girl of an influential man and a marginalized woman in the community. This is what uh, Frederick Bruner, in a commentary, I think probably published 20 years ago, he said this, In his culture, girls were not always highly prized, And among pagans, female babies were far more likely than their brothers to be exposed, that is, abandoned after birth, either to die or to be raised for slavery by passers-by. To this day, female infanticide is a major problem in India and in China. In Jesus' society, women ranked little ahead of children or slaves. And then he's speaking about the woman who's sick and comes and touches him. He says this, Her inferior status prevents her from approaching Jesus with the confidence that he will treat her as a human being of equal dignity, which is why she sneaks up behind him. Do we appreciate the number of liberations Jesus' ministry unleashed? We are still trying to catch up with Jesus. Speaking about today's society, we are still trying to catch up with Jesus. Do you see that in the Gospels? That was a quick sidebar, but the point being that Jesus came for all kinds of people, regardless of what society ranked them as. And then Jairus, this leader of the synagogue, and the woman, they both come to Jesus at the end of their rope. They need him, and they know it. And they somehow seem to believe that he's able to solve their problem. So Jairus, synagogue leader, he's desperate And he comes to Jesus and he implores him, he begs him, and Jesus agrees to go with him. It's okay, I'll follow you, let's go. And then in the middle of this crowd, this crowd is thronging around, this crowd of people that are like, oh, we've heard about this guy, he's going to work a miracle, there's a girl on our deathbed, like, this is going to be a good one, let's go see it. And they're pressing up all around him as he's walking. And then this lady touches his garment and he stops. And his disciples are annoyed. 
Did you catch that in verse 31? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Like Everyone's pushing up on him, and he, but he feels something different happen when this woman touches out, reaches out and touches his garment. And so he stops and takes a look around and asks, Can you imagine how frustrating this would have been for Jairus? Hey, my daughter is on her deathbed like she's about to die. The sense of the language is she's as good as dead. Can we go? And then a crowd is gathering around and he just stops and says, Hey, did somebody touch me? What's going on here? What's the deal? My daughter is dying and you're stopping to figure out who tapped you on the shoulder? What is going on? This woman, she sneaks up behind Jesus. And the reason she's sneaking, we got to it a little bit in the quote, but she's sneaking up on him because the condition that she has is very embarrassing and very miserable and very shameful for her. In the Levitical law, uh, with this constant flow of blood, she would have been considered ceremonially or ritually unclean for 12 years. How old were you 12 years ago? Picture yourself 12 years ago. Can you imagine if you're a Christian not being allowed to come to church for 12 years? Can you imagine other people not being allowed to touch you? Because if they touch you, your ritual impurity would be imputed to them. And so they won't. That's the reality of her life. She's been unable to go to the temple Unable to have close fellowship and community with other people. And at the same time, in this little sneak attack, she shows this incredible faith. Like it seems a little naive and superstitious, but it's amazing. She's thinking, if I could just touch, like, I don't even need to talk to him. If I could just touch his garment. If I could just touch his robe. Matthew tells us it's a little tassel. A lot of the religious leaders would have these tassels on the corners of their garments. She touches this little tassel. I can just touch that, I'll be healed. And then she does it, and it works. Like this kind of silly, superstitious action pays off. She's healed. And so, like, Jesus, she's healed, just keep moving, right? Like, why are you stopping to have a conversation? She's fine now, and there's a dying girl waiting on you. Can you imagine being in an emergency room and somebody with a chronic condition who's turned the corner and is better now and your daughter's dying in the next room and the doctor's like, well, let's talk about that. Let's kind of, what's your story? I want to hear more about this situation. How long has this been going on? And, well, you know, why'd you come to this hospital and not the other one? And, like, you, the doctor would be sued for malpractice and rightfully so. But Jesus stops and he delays because he loves that woman. He loves her and he wants her to know that the healing that just happened to her was not some sort of magic power. It wasn't just her superstition. But he wants her to know that her faith is both personal and public. It's personal and it's public. And he needs her to know that because he loves her. And he also loves his disciples who are annoyed. And he loves the crowd who's thronging around him. And he wants them 
to see this woman. This woman that's been in isolation and shame, but he's going to now put her on display as an example to them of faith, of what it actually looks like to go after him. Verse 33 says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Those vows we take. Remember that time you had to give a testimony in court and they told you to, I hope you haven't done that, but maybe you have, uh, to tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. She tells him the whole truth. She tells him the whole story, and she's afraid. She's trembling with fear. We don't know why she was afraid. She afraid of Jesus? Is she afraid of the crowd? Is she embarrassed that she got busted on her, her little covert operation here? But she falls down before him, just like Jairus did in the previous passage, in the passage that we skipped, just like this demon-possessed man does when he sees Jesus. And she told him the whole truth, and he stops And listens to her story. He listens to her. And he's making her faith public. Do you know if you're a believer that you have a public faith? Faith in Jesus can begin in secret. And it often does. But it never stays in secret. And Jesus is showing her that. She needs to know that and so does the crowd. And the crowd, I mean, you know, they're approaching him publicly. They're thronging around him, pressing up on him. And they're touching him. But something about the way this woman touched his garment was different than theirs. Because she touched him out of faith and out of need. She needed him. And it says he felt power come out of him. Like, I don't know what that means. Like, like, whoa, what's that? Somebody just charged their phone off of me? What's happening? (laughs) She touched him in faith and in neediness. And Jesus is showing them and he's showing her that he does have the power and he's making it known. And that we have access to that power. That just like this woman, everyone in the crowd and all of us have access to the power of Jesus through faith. And neediness. We have access to him. And so it's public, but it's also personal. Like she doesn't just get to sort of play a game of tag with him, like touch and run. He's saying, no, no, no. I need to know you. Who are you? What's your story? And then she got something even more than her, even her great faith, her expectation of if I could just touch him, I'll be healed. She gets something even better. Verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. He calls her daughter. This woman he's never even met that he had to pick out of the crowd. She isn't just healed. She isn't just clean. She's family. She's in the family. Um... A lot of you guys know our, our three-year-old had an appendectomy. Her appendix ruptured the first week of school. We took her to the hospital. And this awesome surgeon, Dr. Boomer, did surgery on her. And she was great, Dr. Boomer was. And, and now there's like 
Just these like little fingernail sized scars on Phoebe, like you can barely even tell it happened. But she healed her, she saved her, Dr. Boomer did. But Dr. Boomer doesn't call her daughter. Like that'd be weird. Right? We don't have a lifelong personal relationship with Dr. Boomer. I'm lucky I remember her name. I was so sleep deprived when it all went down. And that word, daughter. I mean, Jairus is standing right there. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And the word's repeated in the next verse. It's like Jairus has got to be standing there going, Daughter? What about my daughter? The one who's dying that we're taking a quick pit stop on the way. What about my daughter? Jesus has forced Jairus to wait. He's made him wait. And I think part of what Jesus is doing by delaying, he's doing it for the woman, of course. But I think he's also doing it for Jairus. Uh, He's going to show him his power. We'll see in a second his power even over death. So Jairus, because he has to wait, is going to see even more of Jesus than he thought he was going to see. But also... I think he wants Jairus to see this woman. I think he wants Jairus to know that she exists and to pay attention to her because, see, Jairus is the leader of the synagogue. He's kind of like the local pastor of the church. And she's been in his community for the last 12 years with this condition. And it's almost like he's saying, Jairus, have you ever even seen her before? And this is probably a woman that Jairus had never really, he may have seen her around town, but had he ever really looked at her? Had he ever noticed that she wasn't allowed to come into the synagogue? Had he ever given her the time of day because she's unclean and she can't come in and nobody wants to touch her? She's like someone with the swine flu in that community. You know, like don't go near them because then you're going to catch it and then you're going to spread it to other people and just stay away. She's a social pariah and... For 12 years, she's been suffering with everyone keeping their distance. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, Jairus, those 12 years of joy that you've had with your daughter have been 12 years of suffering for her. His daughter is 12 years old. And do you know that I came for her and not just you? Let me ask you this, quick application. Do you see the needs of the people around you? Do you see them? Do you see international students who feel completely lost and afraid in a foreign country and don't know how to make friends? Or are they invisible to you? Do you see that kid in your fraternity or not in your fraternity who got blackballed and was one vote away from getting in and now he's wandering around campus dejected? Do you see the brokenness and the loneliness and the stress and the anxiety around you? Or are you just simply consumed with yourself and your needs? Now listen, I don't want to make you feel too bad. I want to shame you. Because a lot of us in this room, we actually need to identify more with the woman than with Jairus. Like a lot of you need to believe that Jesus can actually draw near to you and in the place of your deepest shame and insecurity and fear, 
he can be touched and you can be healed. But others of us really do need to hear and to see that just as Jesus can come and heal the most intimate places of other people or of us, he also came for others. He also came for the people around you in your community that might be invisible to you right now. But most of all, Jesus, I think, wanted Jairus to see the woman, but most of all, Jesus wanted Jairus to see Jesus for who he really was. That's what Mark is doing to us. He wanted him to learn real faith in Jesus in waiting, being forced to wait, God delaying something we want from him, even if it's a good thing that we want, can actually strengthen our faith. It can produce and create real faith faith in us. Um, one of the things I love about my job, I get to do a lot of weddings. Um, and one of my favorite ones was about, I guess about six years ago now. Um, a student from RUF uh, named Jenny uh, had done a, a year abroad in Germany and had met this German farm boy. I mean, it's just like out of a novel or something. Uh, <laughs> His name is Hans Martin, and he's not a farm boy. Like, he's going to, like, inherit this farm. Like, he's, it's pretty cool. Um, and they had this big decision of, like, do we want to... The way the laws work in Germany, like, you can either take the property or not, but you don't, like, get the money. <laughs> like, so... They're, but they've opted to take the property, so they live on this cool farm in Germany now. Um, but it was, one, it was a really cool wedding. One, because it was bilingual, so I had to do it in English and German. I don't speak German. Uh, <laughs> There was a translator. So, like, there was a guy in RUF who was really fluent in German, and so I sent him the manuscript, and he translated it, and then the actual Germans, like, fixed his translation. I would talk, and then they would speak in German, and then I would talk, and they'd speak in German. But me and Hans Martin, like, we were at... There was this, this little chapel that was near Jenny's house. It was, like, a block away from the home she grew up in. It was really cool. But it's, like, this historic site. Like, it's not in current use. There were no bathrooms, there was no lobby. There were like the front doors and then the chapel and a basement. And so we were supposed to wait at the front of the church, and her dad was going to drive her around in an SUV, and then somebody was going to give us the signal to go to the front of the church, and it was time. And so we were going to walk to the front of the church, and then she'd come in with her dad. And so we're standing in the back of the church, and somebody goes, go, 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 go. And so me and Hans Martin, we, like in the like we run to the front, we like go. And then we like get all lined up nice and straight, and we stand there, and they're playing the music. There was a, at least a piano in the room. They're playing. The song's over. They play another song. We stood there for 15 minutes. I kid you not. Like Whoever in the back thought they got the signal was like wrong. So we're, we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and the crowd's kind of getting nervous, and they're all starting to talk to each other and check their phones. And they're kind of giggling, and I, about 15 minutes in, I just kind of glanced over at Hans Martin and kind of like, you know, and he goes, where the whole room could hear it, he goes, she'll be here. <laughs> it was awesome. He was like, I don't care, she'll be here. Like, so I guess like, you know, somebody got the signal wrong, she was just getting her dress ready or whatever, but it was this really cool moment. I thought about it later, I was like, he was just like, he just had total faith that Jenny was coming. Like, he was so secure. He, I was like, oh, this is, it's going to awkward. Let's get a little embarrassing. Like, it's, did she, like, 
jump in the convertible and take off. Like, what is, what is going on? Is this going to be really the worst day of your life? Uh, and people have flown in from Germany, and they brought gifts and cases of German beer for the reception. I mean, it was intense. She'll be here. And Jesus is saying to Jairus, like, great faith is shown in the waiting. You wait and you watch. And of course, Jesus isn't done. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear. Only believe. He's saying, be like Hans Martin. Like, this looks bad. This is the worst. And this is an amazing thing, what he's asking. I know that your greatest fear, you just got news that it came true. Your worst imagination is a reality, but trust me. Believe. And in Greek, the, the word for believe, it's the same root word as the word faith. The previous chapter, he says, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Mark's picking up on a theme that Jesus is driving home of out of fear and into faith. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. He shows up on the scene. This little girl is dead. There's mourners. And in in that culture, they would actually hire people from the community to come and be like professional mourners. And they would lead uh, the group in songs of lament. Uh, Which maybe isn't a bad idea. Uh, I think we don't know how to grieve in our culture. But they're weeping, they're wailing, they're, they're, they're crying out. And Jesus says, oh, she's just asleep. And they laugh in his face. They mock him. And so he makes the crowd go away and just lets the three disciples in. And these mourners are just ridiculing him. And by the way, when he says she's asleep, she was dead, just to be clear. She was really dead. She wasn't mostly dead. She was all the way dead. Luke and Matthew make that crystal clear if it's vague and Mark. But to Jesus, she's just asleep. Verse 40 continues. But he put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John. And he went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Love that part. Give her something to eat. Before he had made a private healing public. You can't keep this in secret. But now... He's making a public healing. This huge crowd is following him to see it happen. He says, you can't come in. He makes it private. Why? First, because he loved this woman who was ostracized and ashamed. And what she needed 
was to be recognized and to be seen out of secret shame into public honor. And so that's what he does for her. But here, this little girl and her parents could use a little privacy. It's kind of a tough moment for all of them. Besides, she's going to be hungry when she wakes up. I love that. Give her something to eat. She needs a snack. Like, what is wrong with you? She's, she's been dead for, like, hours. Anything that works up an appetite? Um, again, Frederick Bruner says this. If Jesus had been a showman, he would have challenged the disbelievers to come into the room. But for Jesus, healing is not a show. It's not an advertisement or an attraction. So Jesus asks unbelief to leave. And he brings only faith into the room. He brings only faith into the room. And I love what he's... This is so cool. Okay, so the thing, Talitha Kumi. Okay, here's the thing. Like The New Testament, for the most part, is written in, the, in Greek. Right? You probably know this. But every now and then, the authors will preserve the original Aramaic, and that's what's going on here. So Mark gives us the Aramaic, and then he translates it for us. Um, why? Because it seems like there were moments in other places when Jesus says, Abba, Father, which is, a, again, like this sort of affectionate term for his father. There was something about it that just stuck out to the disciples where they hung on to that, and they kept it in the text. And this Talitha, is this, it means little girl, but it's this term of affection, this term of endearment. Um, so Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise, little girl, get up. It's what your mom would say to you when she's waking you up early on the first day of school. Or before a big road trip for the family vacation. It's like, all right, sweetie, it's time to get up. Wake up. It's this incredibly tender and affectionate thing. It's affectionate. It's personal. And this act, so far in the Gospel of Mark, this is his biggest miracle, raising the dead. What is going on? This incredible act of power over the greatest enemy that human beings face, death. And at the same time, it's really soft and tender and affectionate. This radical power and gentle intimacy put together. And this little girl wakes up like she's waking up from a nap as he takes her by the hand. Church Father Ambrose said this, where faith in the resurrection is present, we do not have a species called death, but simply resting. And Chrysostom said this, in truth, when he, Jesus, had come, death was from that time forward merely sleep. She is dead, but to Jesus, she's just asleep, and all he has to do is wake her from a nap. Jairus had to wait, and he waited. Do not fear, but believe, and it seems like he did. And because he waited, he got to see the greatest miracle so far in the book of Mark. In Luke, there's another raising earlier in the story that Mark leaves out. But he gets to see the greatest of all miracles, other than Jesus' own resurrection, that this little resurrection of this little girl points forward to in his story because he waited. This miracle so far is this exclamation point of the opening section of Mark as we are watching the stranger things and going, what is going on? Who is this person? He's healing. He has power over storms. He's driving out demons. He's touching the untouchable. He's raising the dead. 
And he is calling you and me, the reader, to believe. To step out of fear and with trembling faith, reach out to Jesus. That's what I want to do, and I hope you'll do it with me. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are good, that you